Okay. Any questions or further points of discussion or anything from this morning? Dave. Okay, it's sort of multifaceted. There, I've seen five categories, maybe there are more, people who are in opposition to Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, and elders. Okay. And they did a search on all those, and the Pharisees are the primary opponents of Jesus until he gets to Jerusalem. And then they Scribe, drop out. Scribes are mentioned too, and then no more Pharisees. Sadducees yeah. ask one question about marriage, and they're gone. But once he's in Jerusalem, it's always chief priests and scribes mainly, and then sometimes elders. I wonder if we can review those five categories, and why is this switch, or where did the Pharisees go? Sure. Sure. The, the, let's start with the Pharisees. The Pharisees show up in chapter 5. They're, they have a quick, tragic arc um, in Luke 5. Let me get there myself. Uh, let me, and while you turn, while well, people who don't have digital Bibles turn there, let me, uh, I think the answer is ultimately Luke wants us to see the uniform resistance of the people, of all these leaders. Um, but the Pharisees, as we understand it, the Phariseeism rose up during the intertestamental period under Judas, Judas Maccabee when they led his revolt. It was a reform movement, and they operated out of the synagogues in the towns. So in chapter 5, verse 17, we first get introduced to the Pharisees. Uh, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees, the teachers of the law, which are synonymous with scribes, uh, were sitting there. And so there's no mention that they're opposed to him. Here's, who's this Jesus? It's not long before they're offended. Um, verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And so then Jesus tells the man to get up to show. So that's their first introduction. Then they're grumbling at Jesus' disciples because he goes to Levi's um, party in verse 30. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples. But then they up their game from the disciples to Jesus himself in chapter 6, too. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you? Now they're grumbling at him. And then um, in verse 7 of chapter 6, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might have a reason to accuse him. And then by 11, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So there's their ark. They've, they're set in the course. They hate Jesus. And they're going to follow him around because they are the, the rulers of the local synagogues. They don't tend to have a ton of money, and they don't tend to have nearly as much respectability as the scribes and the Sadducees from Jerusalem. So they're the, the major... Now, the, the scribes are simply lawyers, students of the law. The Pharisees weren't necessarily experts of the law. They implemented the interpretation. So the, so the scribes, the lawyers, are the ones who would study. There could be Pharisees who are scribes. There could be Sadducees who are scribes. So they were the students of the law and the appliers of the law. The Pharisees were more about the application. Um, there were some Pharisees who were also scribes, but the Pharisees are the ones who want to implement it publicly. The scribes are the ones who are coming up with interpretation. Then, as we get to Jerusalem, so I think Luke has established Pharisees hate Jesus. There's a couple exceptions. Jesus goes in chapter 6 to the house of Simon the, the, uh, the Pharisee. I think it's seven or eight, six or seven or eight, with a sinful woman who weeps at Jesus' feet. There's some hope for that guy. Jesus treats him respectfully um, and talks to him by name. He goes to his house for dinner. Seven. So, yeah, it's seven. In verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat, asked him to eat with him. 
And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And if you jump to verse 40, Jesus talks him respectfully. And Jesus answered said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So, I mean, he calls him by name. There's none of this, you whitewashed tomb stuff. So, Simon, who knows? We don't know how he ends, but he's an outlier for the Pharisees. There's not many outliers. But as Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the ruling class, this gets back to what I was saying this morning about the Supreme Court, is made up of the scribes and the priests. And the Sadducees are a priestly group. They're all priests. Not all priests are Sadducees, but all the Sadducees are priests, as far as we can tell. Let me track that one down. The, uh, where is it? It's an axe. The, they saw that they were Sadducees. Hold on. Let me find it. Acts gives us that. Sad Sadducees. Okay. Acts. I got it. Yeah, Acts 23. So Acts 23, Paul perceived that one part of the set one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried to them, brothers. Now where's the party of where's it say the party of the high priest? That is the Sadducees. Where is that? Um when the Sadducees said there is no resurrection, yeah. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are oppositely opposed. The Pharisees are the the, the right wingers. Is it six? 23, yeah. 23. Acts twenty three six. Now Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees. He cried to them. No, there's one that talks that connects the Sadducees with the scribes or the priests. I'm trying to. Hmm. No. This gives you the idea that they're opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisees believe in a resurrection. They're literalists. They're the fundamentalists. They're the conservatives. The Sadducees are the social gospel. There is no afterlife. Religion is only useful for the here and the now. The Sadducees control the temple as they're connected with the priests, and the priests run the temple. And so, therefore, they've got the money. They've got the respectability. They've got the pomp and the circumstance that the Pharisees may have a case-by-case, case, but by and large do not have. The Pharisees are more grassroots the uh, the high priest. Let me find it. Let me see the high priest. High priest. Yeah, Acts. Um, yeah, it is Acts five seventeen. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. So the part, the Sadducees and the high priest are directly connected. So yeah, Acts 5.17 makes that connection for us. So even though the Sadducees aren't named, they're still present because you've got the high priest in the meeting. So they're absolutely there. They just aren't being named. Um, but they're part of that same group. So what we've got then in, and, and they do switch around some. Let's go back to Luke 20, um, verse 1. Well, even at the end of 19. So at the end of 1947, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests... The scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. 20 verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, I'm not sure if the principal men and the elders are meant to be seen as two categories or synonymous. What Luke's, I think, showing is, is by and large, all the people who have any influence, all the people of authority, whether they're religious conservatives, religious liberals, they all are opposed to Jesus. And that's in contrast in Luke to the people. So that's what I was trying to say this morning, that the tension gets resolved. Which way is it going to go? Because um, look at 48, 1948. They did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So they're in contrast to the people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men wanted to destroy him. 
The people are hanging on his words. And again, in, in uh, 21, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they are mad. But a little later in verse uh, 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on them at that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable about them, but they feared the people. So the leadership's in contrast with the people. And so, I, I mean, obviously we know the way the story ends, but for the first time hearing the story, there's, okay, which way is it going to pan out? Will it be the people or will it be the leadership? And then they want to arrest Jesus privately. Again, in chapter 22, verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. There's the contrast. The people on the one end, the leading men, the elders, the scribes, the Sadducees. The, and then, after this, for whatever reason, however they do it, after this Sanhedrin meeting with, with them that we looked at this morning, they've got the people on their side. Or at least the people who speak up are on their side. And the people who are opposed to them are silent. Because by the time Pilate responds in 23.4, and Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, and then from then on, the they is the Sanhedrin and the crowds crying out for Jesus' blood. Do you want, do you want me to go further than that? or is that's... Just one little follow-up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like the... In one place, I think it's 21, that the chief priests, scribes, and elders are three categories. In the verse today, 66, it says, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. It sounds like chief priests and scribes are elders. Well, they're, they're categories that can overlap. Like, you can be a Pharisee and a scribe, so saying you're a scribe doesn't indicate whether you're a Pharisee. And you can be those things and not be an elder. You can be an elder and not be those things. There are Pharisees who are elders. There are elders who are not Pharisees. So... This gives us more of an assembly. This is their leading judges. It's the oldest, wisest men they've got, and it's made up of chief priests and scribes. So the Sanhedrin consists of what categories? Those, those, it's the those leading are, judges okay. and priests. It's, okay. it's the name given for, I think, what we looked at in Deuteronomy in 17. Um, in 17, I got it written down here. No, I don't. That's not true. I have to go to Deuteronomy. If you've got a case that's too hard for yourself, the Lord says, okay, my numbers now. Hold on. There it is. Okay. So, if any case arises uh, requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judges who are in office in those days. So I think the Sanhedrin would be that mixture of the priests and the judges who are made up of the leading men, the elders. And here, the judges are the lawyers, um, the scribes. So that's, I think, the Sanhedrin. I mean, I know extra-biblically people look up, and, but I'm just trying to do an inductive internal study. That's what we can figure out. This is the elding, elding, Wow. The elder leading men and this council of judges are made up of scribes and priests, which is basically what Deuteronomy is talking about. So in the one sense, I was trying to make the point, this is a biblically sanctioned court. It's corrupt, perverse, and and doing its job poorly, but it is a biblically sanctioned court, which I think is why it's the only one Luke cares about. Because the other ones at night are these kangaroo courts that they've made up and the chief priest is going to interrogate him. This is the one that matters. This is the one that is sort of like, you know, Regis on who wants to be a millionaire, final answer. I mean, this is the judgment and the verdict that actually has 
antecedent in the law and absolutely is going to be decisive for the change and the people just fall right in line behind it. Yeah. Last Old Testament, the last Old Testament uh, reference. You Deuteronomy have. 17. All three of the Deuteronomy references are right here in your notes. It's, the, it's next to 1B. Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 10. Um, you're welcome. Oh, mic- microphone. There's five people, uh, five people who listen to this who want. No, they, they repeat regularly. Mark Sullivan regularly thanks me for standing up for him. And it, Oh, there might be more, yes. Yeah, I know just from looking up the Sanhedrin before that it, it sounds like almost in every city of any size they had a tribunal or council, which That's was That's what Deuteronomy 16 lays out. Right. But the, the, the supreme courts in the place that the Lord your God will choose, Jerusalem. Right. And, and made up of Pharisees and Sadducees yep. for the most part. Yep, yep. absolutely. And, and this really is the, the basis of, I mean, we're so used to this, this, the, some of these principles in our courts of law, but really, this ethic coming out of the Old Testament, it's the same measure of jurisprudence that Jesus gives for church discipline. Remember, you take two or three witnesses along with you. It's the exact same phrase from Deuteronomy 19. So the church uses the same level of evidence and therefore the same measures of inquiry they're supposed to be doing. And our legal system around us, basic concepts like the right for the accuser to face the accused to face his accuser. That's right there in Deuteronomy 19. The notion of letting someone go in under a reasonable doubt. Diligent inquiry. I mean, all of this is in stark contrast to other you know, kingdoms where the king just you're you're getting put to death. And this is Western civilization comes out of this. I mean, not that we do it perfectly, but it really is the foundation of it. I want to go a little further on that for a second, if you don't have any questions. What I was trying to say this morning, is what I get chagrined by is so often we, we live in a world, as Christians, we should be very careful to render judgments and verdicts. We should remember, hey, you got to hear both sides. Hey, to give an answer without hearing is folly and shame. And yet so much of social media is about, what do you think? This is shocking, isn't it? Tell us what you think. You know, and then we, yeah, I am shocked and outraged. And, and, and we need to really be careful of that. Um, we need to really be careful that as, as Christians, we don't want to act shamefully, we don't act foolishly. We want to model what righteous judgment looks like. And, that, and it's always the easiest when somebody we're inclined to not like, our political opponent, we hear some terrible story about them. Well, that's just disgraceful. Well, have you actually heard both sides of it? Or are you just all too happy to be shocked that, you know, this person you don't like did something bad? Or conversely, someone you like, a bad, a bad report comes out of someone you like, well, this must be a conspiracy. They must be persecuting them. Like, no, we should probably wait till we hear both sides of the matter before we really say anything. Um, so that's, that's just a reminder I want to give for us because we live in a world that more and more and more and more, and you've got more and more platforms to let the world know what you think. Um, than you ever had before. I mean, today, you can more quickly disseminate your opinion than any point in human history, <laughs> right? I mean, you can just tweet it. Yeah. Um, our, our president does this regularly. We know what he thinks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, Steve. Microphone for Steve. I think you're being overly judgmental. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Okay. It bothered me a little bit that you discounted 
the Hosanna singers on Palm Sunday. How so? Well, you said they were just totally quiet. Uh, then you said all the people got in line behind the Sanhedrin. Not all the people. Not all the people. I hear them whispering on the periphery, just in shock and awe, no, wondering no. about you know God's mysteries and judgments. Let me let me clarify what I was trying to say. I, I may have been unclear, and it looks as though I have been. I've heard some people preach. This crowd that's singing Hosanna is crying out for his blood three days later. There's way too many people to say that. One crowd isn't the same as another crowd. There is a crowd heralding Jesus as the Messianic Davidic king when he arrives on Palm Sunday. They're laying palm branches and their clothes down on the ground. Whatever that crowd is doing, they're not recorded as saying that or defending Jesus when, he's, when another crowd is crying out for his blood. And there may be some overlap. I'm just making, at best, they're being quiet. They're certainly being quiet in any public form sense, maybe in their homes to their kids. He's the Messiah. But I'm just saying, publicly, all we hear is kill him. We don't hear, and some said kill him, and some said, no, he's a prophet. And we've seen that type of division earlier in Luke's gospel, even when some say he has a demon. Well, can the man with the demon open the eyes of the blind? We have those discussions where there's some friction in the crowd. The crowd that shows up in front of Pilate is univocal. That, that's all I'm getting at. So the Hosanna singers are not publicly, on the record, doing anything. Now, maybe they went home. Maybe they're too scared. Maybe, as you said, they're in shock and awe, which is why I said the best we can say is they're quiet. That's, does, do you disagree with that? No, no, push back, push back. No, no, I just didn't want you using your tongue ambidextrously. <laughs> Amen. All right. <laughs> Took me a while to work that one through. What do you get when you cross a joke and a rhetorical question? Lee, what do you want? Uh, well, <laughs> well, part of, I mean, I'm agreeing with what you're telling him in the sense that it's a camera. The camera is showing this scene, it's going to that scene. Right. And those other people might be getting the snot beat out of them by the, you know, who knows what's going on in the right. background. But there's that. And the other thing we're talking about, uh, our system of justice if you ever pay attention to these cases where a man's been in prison for 20 years and then they, the Innocence Project or something, yeah. invariably it's because they, they didn't have the two to three witnesses or the two to three witnesses. One of them was a false witness or it was right. the wrong DNA, but you can always tie it down to injustice comes invariably when those rules right. are broken. Well, and, and right now we're dealing with the, with the Me Too movement, and there's some good stuff there. To the degree that people who've been afraid or haven't been listened to, who've been really wronged, are able to now get a hearing and now able to do amen, that's wonderful. But I think as that picks up steam, we got to be careful. Just because someone makes an accusation, we can't necessarily get in behind them and say, all right, okay, let's, we need to do a, dil- a diligent inquiry must be done. Let the judges look into this. That sounds serious. Absolutely, amen. But I think we can sometimes knee-jerk now the other way and just fall in behind, you know, on a weak person, a person in a position of weakness speaks of being preyed upon or, or mistreated by someone in the power authority over them. We still need to do a diligent inquiry, not give an answer before we hear and all of that. So that's the other thing we need to watch out for is just falling in behind that one way or the other. Um, you know, so often it's, you know, it amazes me that people who've read a blog think they're smarter than a jury who watched all the evidence from both the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney over weeks, and they'll just, oh, this is ridiculous, this is clearly biased, because you read a blog or two, huh? 
I'm going to go with the people who watched the entire evidence train for a week in court. Just, just me. And um, what was the other thing? The, the Hosanna, the getting the snot beat out of them. The point I was trying to make for this morning, though, is this is Israel's now. The, the, the rejection of Jesus, first by their highest court and then by the people, means the whole nation. And there's no divided, the whole nation except for these people, the nation, so that Peter can lay at the feet of Jews coming in from foreign parts. You did this. It's now, it's referred to as corporate solidarity, that the people, it's enough that it's the people. Just like in the future in Zechariah 12, the nation's going to repent. Well, every single last one, enough that you can say the nation has repented and believed. Um, there's, it's going to be a national turning. So this is the national rejection there will be um, a future national turning. That, that's the point I'm trying to make. This is no longer a, before Luke's looking at different groups. This group doesn't like him, this group does. Now we've got a unified Israel has rejected and condemned the Son of God. That's what's so decisive, final, and absolute about it. Okay. Other thoughts or questions? Greg Sweet. Bryce, you're just chilling up here, man. Come on. Oh, he's good. Well, he's always going to be closer if you're sitting in the front row. You know that, right? Okay. Uh, this is nothing to do with what, what we've discussed so far, but I'm just curious. Several times Jesus has asked, are you the Son of God, or are you, are you claiming to be God? He never just says, yep. He says, you've said so, or you have said it, or... John 4. John 4, he does. To a Samaritan, th- four times married, living with her boyfriend, shamed woman. Our fathers say the Messiah comes. When he does, he'll restore all things. I who speak to you am he. He does have some, you're absolutely right, very frequently he speaks under a, under a veil. He speaks in slightly weird, there are, some direct, there are some direct occasions where he flat out just says, yep, I'm the Messiah. I'm just curious, why does he do that? I mean, why... Why do, you, why do you think he doesn't just say, yes, I'm he? Well, here, I, I suggested three. In this one instance, I suggested in the notes three reasons, and I can give you some further. I think Luke gives us some further details back in chapter 8 or 10. But here, one is he doesn't want to validate the court. There's a sense in which giving a straight answer, yes, sir, yes, your honor, I am, is validating a court that he's already said. This is a joke. So there's a, I mean... Technically, did he confess to anything? No. Technically, he's just said, you said it, which is part of the reason why I'm saying they don't have enough to go on to condemn him. They don't have two or three witnesses. He hasn't even clearly responded. Um, so that's the first. And the second is I, because I think he'd want to qualify. One of the commentators I read said, it's almost though Jesus is saying, I wouldn't exactly put it that way, but sure. Because <laughs> he knows what they mean by the categories. He knows that they think... Here's what they mean. Are you the one who's about to overthrow Rome and institute a kingdom? Well, no. That's because they take, he's the Messiah, go to Pilate, he's a king. He's setting himself up to be a king. And clearly, a king currently opposed to defying and, in op- and trying to mount a coup against Caesar. That's going to be um, the, the basis of that. But if you go back to Luke 8 or 10, one of the two. Yes. It does? NASB says, yes, I am. Interesting. I'll have to track down whether that's the variant reading or not. You are right in saying it. 
Well, the, the Greek that I read is simply leges, which is third person plural of you say. You say, I am. Ego me. You say, I am. Um, but maybe there's a variant reading. Maybe there's a text variant going on behind that. Oh, let me get back to you on that. I, now is not the best time to try to do textual criticism. Go back to Luke 8. Is it 8? Yes, it's 8. Here's, here's I believe, a couple, couple of reasons, Greg. One, in 8, he begins speaking in parables. That's a new wrinkle into his ministry style. And the disciples come to him, and they don't understand the parable. And so in verse 9, um, the disciples asked him what, the, what this meant. He said to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. For others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And way back when, probably two years ago, um, when we covered this, I made the point that Jesus now introduces a second edge to his ministry. He is here to give, to give truth and light to those who see, but he's also here on a blinding mission. He, he's, he's also here to harden and blind people. It's, it's, it's Isaiah's commission. I, everyone likes to quote, you know, when, they, when somebody gets called to ministry, they quote, here I am, Lord, send me. The very next verse, go to a people who are hard-headed and who will not hear. Go say to them, keep on seeing, but do not see. Keep on hearing, but do not hear. I mean, Isaiah's ministry, God tells them, they're not going to listen to you. But I want you to go, and I want you to warn them anyway. So Jesus introduces that here. The other reason why Jesus, I think, is, is quiet about this is he's got to get the timing right. Now, Luke's gospel doesn't make as big of a deal of this, but go over to John. John makes it clear Jesus is controlling the information that gets out because he's got to control the timing. Because as his enemies understand clearly who he claims to be, just as we saw this morning, the Christological claims are driving to the cross. His, his claims to deity, his claims to being the Messiah, those are precisely the claims he's got to keep under hush for a while. So he tells Peter, don't, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah yet. He tells the demoniac, Shh, don't, don't say it. So in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding at Cana, and um, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also invited to the wedding his disciples. When the uh, wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I'm going to argue, I'll show you the next time Jesus talks about this in John, what he's saying in effect is if I start working too many miracles too publicly too early, they'll kill me off, off schedule. And so what he does do is he does make wine, but he does it in a way that nobody except for the servants and the head wine, the, the, the head of the feast knows. Nobody else knows he did this miracle. Um, so where is it where they make that clear? Um, verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew. So Jesus does do what his mother says, but in a way that only the servants and the disciples know. He's not publicly doing a big miracle. Now jump to chapter 7. His brothers don't believe in him. And so they've heard Jesus go around and claim to be somebody. And so they say to him, um, verse 1, After this Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Jerusalem because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And the Feast of the Booths was at hand. Now the Feast of Booths is intense. It's intense. Okay. Uh, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, which is very similar to what he said to his mother. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it that my works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. It's not Jesus' time to make a big public um, out. That, that's what happens at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. This is not time for Jesus to go up with a big entourage and make a big show of things. That's going to mess the timetable up, which is, I think, what explains why he does go up, but he goes up guerrilla style. Because he says he's not going up, and, and people, well, he does go up, but later that chapter. I think what he's saying, I'm not going up as you just suggested I go up. And so what we read is, um, verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. That's the big difference. It's not time for a big coming out party as the Messiah. Um, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? You know, and then he comes out and just starts preaching in, in the temple. Then he sort of disappears again. You, you keep going through Luke um, to chapter 7, right? Verse 39. I know him and I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So in John's gospel, you got this ticking clock getting referenced to repeatedly. His hour, his hour, his hour. It shows up again in chapter 8. Verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught the people, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then that shows up again in chapter 12. Is that where it is? Um, yeah, there it is, chapter 12. So, chapter 12, verse 27 which is the transition in John's gospel. John's gospel, 1 through 12, is three or four years of Jesus' life of public ministry. Starting at the end of 12 through 17 is three or four hours of Jesus in his private ministry to disciples. And then 18 to 21 is three or four weeks of Jesus' death, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances. So in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Um, oh, no, the real key verse is verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So if you're reading through John, my hour is not yet, my hour is not yet, my hour is not yet. Then 12, 23, the hour has come. And then what you get is one evening. I mean, it's here, and he's on the cross, and it's this hour. So in John's gospel, Jesus is intently aware of the need for the timing, according to Daniel's prophecy, according to when he has to die. And so he's doing things intentionally because it's not my hour yet. So part of that is controlling the message that gets out. Part of that is controlling the miracles he does. Part of that is controlling how publicly he's doing ministry. So that would be the other reason, I think, why he isn't always just, yep, that's me because he's trying to control it. Which is, I think, even though why this is a kangaroo court, he gives them enough of an admission that they'll, they'll hang him for it. They'll, they'll, I mean, it's almost like, what's the minimum I have to give for them to condemn me? Because <laughs> I don't want to validate this court any more than I have to. So he says, you say, you say that I am. And that's good enough for them. They'll take him to Pilate. But does that, that work? Okay. Jake Hopper. Before we totally depart from that subject, just uh, addressing something Greg, just addressing what Greg said, I think it's important that when we consider this and Jesus' response, 
that his claim to his own identity does not become ambiguous. I only say this because I had to suffer through a college class <laughs> where the disgraced former minister who was teaching it, so I guess he was qualified, was teaching through a Matthew, and he said, Jesus never actually claimed to be God, son of God, anything like that. And I said, I don't know how you get that from Matthew, and if you Matthew's not good enough, you know, look at John. And he said, well, within the book that we're studying in this class, you know, Matthew, and... Um, I just think it's important um, to have that answer and to have these yeah. to, to understand why Jesus responded the way he responded, but also to have John as a, just a backup, a, a comprehensive picture. Christ is Christ yeah. is not unclear about his identity. He well, has and, well, no. And in this passage, when Jesus says, "But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of power," when he yeah. weaves together Psalm 110 and Daniel, they they get what he says. So you're the Son of God. Yes. Yes. So that claim right there mm-hmm. is huge. And he's already made that claim privately to disciples at the end of 21, um, and he's warning them about the claim. It may be veiled. It's not ambiguous. You know, no, 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 he, oh, no. He's making he's... it in such a way as they're clearly going to oh, yes. proceed this. You've got to be pretty well educated to say stupid things like that. <laughs> no, no, you do. It's ridiculous. Now, Jesus never claimed to be God. Before Abraham was, I am. I know. I know. Yeah. I... Um, it, it's, it's ridiculous. But and and what they usually all they mean is I typed in my search engine on my computer, mm. Jesus, I am God. There's no verse where those words appear together. Ooh, impressive, you know. Uh, I'm just saying you do hear yeah. stuff like that, so yes, don't be surprised yes, you if you end up having to explain that to somebody. And I yes. just think that ties in well with what Greg was saying. So yes, yes, and of course when they say Son of God, one, one other point. Go to John five. Um, they don't mean, we, we think of, we're so caught up in, in genetics that when we say son, we're purely thinking lineage, um, CSI, you know, Maury Povich or whatever, you know, they go on the show and turns out you are the father, you know, that type of thing. That's not the way they're using the categories. John 5 is probably the most full discussion on what Jesus means by the term son of God. It's much more of a functional category, like, like father, like son, chip off the old block type of notion. So like in the, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God, he's not talking about justification by peacemaking. Rather, to the degree that you make peace, you act like your father, who is the ultimate peacemaker. So in John 5, um, the, we'll see this really clearly, what is meant by the title. And this is part of the reason why I was saying I think Jesus would want to qualify, because what's going to happen is Jesus is going to claim to be equal with God, claim to be the father's son. And then he's going to spend the rest of the chapter qualifying that, lest anyone misunderstand what he actually means by it. So in John 5, he heals the man by the pool, and we read this. <clears throat> they, they get mad about him for healing a man on the Sabbath, and is he breaking the Sabbath, is he not breaking the Sabbath? And what's interesting is Jesus picks a fight here, because there's two ways Jesus can answer this controversy. He answers it one way in, in John 7 and 8. In John 7 and 8, he, he's in the Feast of Booths. He's come out, gorilla preaching. And this is the man who healed a man on the, on the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, basically, are you sure that's Sabbath breaking? He says, look, the, the priests circumcise on the eighth day. If the eighth day is a Sabbath, they circumcise on the Sabbath. Now, if it's lawful to circumcise a child on the eighth day, how much more lawful is it me to heal the whole man's body? So he could argue along the lines of, seriously, you think this is Sabbath-breaking? Come on. And he does argue along those lines in John 8. 
if he argued that way here, some Pharisees would agree, some would disagree, they'd have a good argument. No one would be trying to kill him. So the fact that Jesus can make that argument and he chooses not to make that argument tells me he's actually picking a fight. So verse 16 in chapter 5, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father's working until now and I'm working too. Which is to say, you know, my dad works on the Sabbath, so I do too. And that, that, that does it. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is a functional category. The claim to be the son of God is making him equal with God. He's one who can sit, and that's the whole point. I'm going to sit down at the right hand of the father. I am qualified to sit down next to my father in heaven as in some sense his equal. Now the rest of John 5, he's going to say, now don't misunderstand me. I can do nothing except what I see the father do. I'm not, I'm not a God in in conflict or competition with him. There's no daylight between us. You have no other sand. Just as the Father raises the dead, so the Son raises. But I'm, but I'm fully God. But I'm not another God. This isn't polytheism. But I'm big G God. It's not like big G, little G God. And the rest of John 5, he's going back and forth qualifying that. Lest, he thinks, lest they think he's teaching polytheism or, or Arianism. Some version of the big God, little God. But that's the, the way the category gets used. So when Jesus calls the Pharisees sons of the devil, he's not in any way speaking ill of their mothers. He's saying in John 8, your son's your father of the devil. How do I know he's a liar from the beginning? You're lying about me. He's a murderer from the beginning. You're trying to kill me. That's how I know whose dad your father is. It's a functional category. Um, so that's part of the debate over what is meant by the title and why he's less than thrilled to his enemies to say, I'm the son of God, as of what they're going to potentially make it out to be. In John 5, where he plainly says it, he spends the next five paragraphs qualifying it so that no one misunderstands what he's actually saying. Okay? Yes. I kind of see this as he's talking to people who act like middle schoolers. And what you're getting is the interesting conversations, and that's what we get to hear. You're not getting the ones where they just shut them down because he doesn't have time to deal with it. <laughs> mm. So can you say the last little bit? I missed what you said. I said you're not getting the, the conversations where he's like, okay, I didn't have time to have a four-hour conversation. So we're getting the more yeah, we involved get, conversations. Yeah, Luke, like, like Lee was saying, I like to think of the text like a screenplay. Luke's zooming in to this piece. I mean, we know from the other Gospels, Jesus before the Sanhedrin was longer, was more involved, there was more people. Luke doesn't care about any of that. Luke's point is this all ultimately hinges on a Christological claim, the identity of Jesus, that's what this is about. That's what they put over his head on the cross. That's why they kill him. And other gospel writers make it clear, well, they hired false witnesses and they couldn't get their story straight. Luke just sets all that aside. He just zooms in. I want you to see this is about who is Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, we, we get little snippets of conversations. We get Like in John's gospel, we keep getting discussions after discussions. That's the f- fascinating thing in John. Like in John 8, he shows up at the Feast of Booths, he teaches. We have no idea what he teaches. And then there's a controversy after he teaches, and that's what John wants us to see. Like, okay. Well, it's the same thing here. So part of it is, okay, what is Luke zooming in, wanting us to see? Where's the camera going? Do we have a wide angle? Are we zoomed in? Are we far out? And that's part of what we're doing is we're looking through Luke's gospel. Absolutely. 
Basically, you're just not getting the real, you get ones that aren't straightforward necessarily answers because you're not getting the really boring conversations. Right, right. Well, and the gospel writers are picking their material to make their point that they want to highlight. I mean, they're not in any way being dishonest, but I want you to see, and part of what we see with Jesus, even in chapter 20, if you aren't interested in truth, Jesus isn't interested in talking to you. Well, if you won't tell me by which, John's baptism, heaven or for man, we don't know, but neither am I, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. I don't talk to people who talk like you. And yet we see Jesus, John 4, the first person, as far as I can tell, that Jesus clearly says he's the Messiah to is that woman at the well. <laughs> Night and day difference between, yeah, I'm not talking to you. I, who speak to him, he. <sighs> and she goes and tells her whole village. Um, yeah, yeah. Anything else? Or is that, you good? Okay. Anybody else? We got about five minutes. Oh, Dave Kingery? No, yes, no, maybe? He's not saying no. I, I was just going to say, I, uh, it almost goes without saying when, 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 when Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies, I mean, that alone should convince anyone that Jesus was the Son of God. And then on top of that, where he says, his, his general speaking spoke, he, he, it was said that he spoke like no other man. Right. And, the, and, well, then, and, he's, and he argues them about the text and silences them. I mean, so even on their own grounds, they're supposed to be the experts of the Torah. We saw at the end of chapter 21, they no longer dared ask him any questions because publicly he had shut them down over and over again. And even after they wouldn't dare talk to him, he's like, I ain't done with you yet. The David's son, how does he say he's Lord? Riddle me this. I mean, and they got nothing to say. So it, it, there's no... When they condemn him, the reader of Luke sees this is not remotely, even possibly, an honest mistake. This is just corruption and hatred. He's beaten them on the text level. He's a better interpreter of the Bible. They can't answer him when he asks them biblical questions. He heals people. He fulfills prophecy. His teaching is is good and life-giving. At every level, these people, no one reading Luke thinks, oh, those poor guys, too bad they didn't see. No, they, they, they see plainly. They see absolutely plainly. Yeah, and then, then the... And on top of that, on top of that, he said, the, the Father testifies to me. Twice. Twice. And, and, and then, on top of that, uh, I, I circled in my Bible where it says he healed everybody who came to him instantaneously, not like psychics, Witch doctors, voodoos, or TBN or CBN. This instantaneous healing of all people. I circled A double L and all the contexts in the Bible where he mm-hmm. and, and John MacArthur said he basically healed all diseases and maladies in Palestine. Yeah, John four forty. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. How could you possibly assume he's not the son of God or God? Well, that's the point. I think that's the point he's making. This isn't, this is what, we do this. I know what I want the answer to be, so I'm going to say what I need to say to make that be what I get. Right? I mean, I want to put you to death. So what do I have to do to come up with some sort of plausible excuse to do that? There's not a slightest interest in truth at all. There's no actual inquiry. 
we, they've decided long ago, we want to put him to death. What can we come up with? We're told in Luke 20, 20, that their real goal, because they don't have the power to put him to death, is um, Luke 20, 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That's Pilate. So their whole goal, we got to find something we can pass on to Pilate so Pilate will kill him. That's all they're looking to do. They're not, so any, any pretense of what's true and what's right and what's just and who it, that's just window dressing. Give us something we can say to Pilate to kill him. That's, Luke's making it clear that's all they're interested in. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that's one more thing that the, 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 the Pharisees' false trial uh, proves how desperate they were to prove that he wasn't the son of God. It takes a false trial. Yeah. But they still want the appearance of, uh, of some sort of formality and, and legitimacy. I mean, they don't just form a, a mob and just kill them. They want some appearance. It reminds me, I was, I was reading, um, we'll close this, I was reading, uh, I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and uh, Hitler put Bonhoeffer to death. But he did it by going through all of his channels with his, with his documents and his little seals. And, I mean, even as the Reich's falling apart, Hitler loved his bureaucracy, you know, and he wanted it to be formal, so, so they take Bonhoeffer out, and they, they read the decree, and it's been signed, and it's been signed by this other person, and countersigned by this person, and it's been sealed, and then they shoot him. When he, he loved the appearance of going through formality, and, and these people do too. They don't want to come out and say, we're lawless, we're wicked, we don't care what the law says, we want what we want, kill him. They want to pretend they're religious, they want to look respectable, they want to look like they had a real court trial, they want it to look legitimate. And so they're absolutely hypocrites. There'd be a little bit more honesty to it if they just said, we hate you, we want to kill you. You know, and just got rid of the pretense. Absolutely. We are out of time, folks. God bless. Godspeed. And uh, I'll see you all, God willing, next week.